You're listening to Eco Thoughts, a podcast expanding the conversation on the biodiversity and climate crisis with aesthetic, ethical, historical, and cultural perspectives. In this episode, you'll attend a lecture by the American philosopher Judith Butler on the topic of climate sorrow. We're in the biggest lecture hall at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark, waiting for Judith Butler to arrive. The place is packed and there's a buzzing anticipation, almost like that of a rock concert. As Butler arrives, a little late, the crowd simmers down and responds with a welcoming applause. Thank you um, for the invitation to come here and to be in dialogue with you. Um, sorry, this coffee was supposed to take place around 10 minutes ago, but we're, we're converging temporalities here. It'll go better for you if I have some of this. Okay. Butler has famously written on the performativity of gender and other topics within queer theory since the late 80s. But the headline of today's lecture is a little different. I'll be talking about climate sorrow, climate grief, but also the task of resistance, the obligation to find a new way of imagining the world we have made and the earth that exceeds our grasp, and rightly so. If we speak about sorrow and grief, it appears that we are referring to subjective states. I want to suggest, however, from the outset that the grief we are undergoing, those of us who are in fact acknowledging the losses produced by climate destruction, this loss belongs to the world. It is, in other words, the world's loss. This grief that we feel, which seems to have its sight and source in our feeling self, or feeling selves in the plural, is already in and of the world, circulating in ways that effectively make our own individual experiences small. I suggest this because although psychologists have written about grief and mourning as subjective states, They have written less on collective grief and sorrow, and they have not always recognized that the object of grief, the what of what we grieve, partially determines both how and whether we can grieve at all. If we follow Adorno's maxim that the object should have primacy, then the loss of the earth, its living processes, but also its regenerative capacities, establish a new condition and object for grieving. And grieving becomes something new, determined, as it were, by its object. If we grieve the loss of what is living, the conditions of life itself, then it is already from the start, our own lives, that we are grieving. Indeed, those who grieve are still living. They are the ones living on, the ones who can assume life as the condition of grief itself. At the same time, it is the living world and the living relations among ourselves as interdependent living creatures that we are grieving, and not just human creatures. The way of thinking that distinguishes between this subject over here, who grieves the loss of life or living processes over there, disavows both the role we have played in bringing about this destruction of life and the interdependency among living creatures, treating the earth instead as an object distinct from the subject. In some ways, it is that epistemological distinction between subject and object, the precondition of so much epistemology 
that rightly comes into crisis when we consider what we can do or not do to arrest the propulsive loss that we know as climate catastrophe. The ways of thinking about grief or mourning are challenged by the conditions of loss. And this is one way in which the what of what we are losing makes us rethink the very process of grieving. For psychoanalysis, a loss has already come to pass, and we who are left to grieve are the ones who are called upon to know and acknowledge that loss. But what if, in climate catastrophe or in war, which, as we know, accelerates climate catastrophe, as we see in the war against Ukraine, the loss is happening at the very same time that we are grieving. The loss is not over, for we are living beings among living beings and processes, and if life is being destroyed, then we are implicated not only as the ones destroying life, but the ones potentially destroyed. Destruction is still happening, and it is our task not only to grieve, but to imagine and to resist the ongoing destruction and the future of a catastrophe of even greater proportions. Many temporalities converge on this scene of loss and outrage, and many of the temporal sequences that have been presupposed by stories of loss and grief now have to be challenged and changed. We have lost, are losing still, and will continue to lose unless this acknowledgement of loss lifts us not only from melancholia and its disavowals, but toward a resistance to and reversal of the destructive processes themselves. The activist groups fighting climate destruction should have our admiration and respect, and if we can, we should undoubtedly join them. Not all of us are able-bodied enough to fight on the front lines, but every front line requires networks of support. I understood, for instance, the activist attack on works of art, the symbolic throwing of paint and food on the protective covers of artworks housed in elite museums, generally exhibiting their national treasures, combinations of capitalism and nationalism worthy of critique. That makes sense to me, given that museums are very often sites of wealth, capital accumulation, and elitism. At the same time, I wonder whether, in order to respond directly to the challenges now delivered to us by climate catastrophe, we need forms of art that can keep us from looking away, disrupt de denialism, and incite us in the direction of collective action. One reason I ask this question is that some art allows us to hold different temporal frames together, compressing space or stretching time, giving us a way to understand ongoing processes that are not so easily made comprehensible through arguments and expositions, including the kind that I am offering here. In a moment, I'll consider the relation between art practices and climate denial and what art can do to help us fathom what we would prefer to deny. To confront climate catastrophe and the losses it has already brought about, the losses that are taking place as we speak, involves living with and coming to know what is unbearable. In many of its forms, art sustains a relationship to what is unbearable. Freud's remark that the world as we know it, is too difficult for us, one of my favorite lines, attests precisely to this. He thought at one point that only art and religion could assuage this unbearability or give us a way to bear the unbearable. To bear the unbearable is not to solve it. It is rather to take up a relation to what is unbearable that lets us stay with it in order to examine its contours and its textures to consider the mechanisms and methods of its reproduction. In a time of great suffering, we inevitably look for orientation and understanding. The ongoing war against Ukraine, and now in Sudan, the brutal occupation and siege of Palestine, 
escalating imperialism, authoritarianism, and neo-fascism. And there are now increasing numbers of people fleeing their homes forced by political violence, but also environmental devastation. There is as well a systemic and escalating form of racial and sexual violence and a pandemic that is only declared over in some parts of the world, a declaration that misses the uneven distribution of vaccines, healthcare, the radically different death tolls that are still happening. These are all forms of loss that have happened but are happening still. They are ongoing forms of loss, the loss of lives, livelihoods, and inter interconnected life forms. If it were a matter of having suffered a catastrophic loss that is now over, we could then ask, oh, how best to grieve this loss and how best to repair and regenerate our world? In what way? With what materials? But these forms of loss are all ongoing. They are happening every day, and so the pause that might be needed to grieve is difficult to take when in the interval of grief a new loss occurs. We are losing as we are grieving, so how do we think about mourning when we are in the process of losing? And when we do not know whether that process will ever come to an end, and when we live with a growing certainty that it never will. Freud's reflections in Mourning and Melancholia assume that a loss has taken place, that it is our task to accept or acknowledge that reality and to mourn. He understood melancholia as a flight from that reality and insisted that mourning requires accepting what he called the verdict of reality over time. He made clear that he was not just thinking about the loss of one person or one valued form of life, but a range of losses, the loss of many people we do not know who are killed in wars, the loss of ideals of the nation when they are no longer plausible, the loss is not just of a parent, but of the ideal that a parent has represented, an ideal that once seemed to be fused with the person herself. It is assumed that the disavowal of loss, that is, melancholia, is only resolved by accepting the loss that has happened, accepting, as it were, that verdict of reality. The temporality of that scene has now changed. We have lost but are losing still, and we see no future in which that loss will stop happening. We have lost, but some of us, especially those who profit from our loss, continue to usher in more loss, to usher more loss into the world. When Freud formulated his reflections on mourning and melancholia in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, he could assume that the war was over or that a loss had taken place. Thus, the psychological struggle of those overwhelmed by loss, um, refusing to accept that loss, was to recount the history, to understand that what is past is past, and to enter into a present without acting as if that loss never happened. For the traumatized, Freud tells us, the losses of the past never stop happening. The past floods the present. Those losses keep happening in the sense that there is no closure for those who have undergone them. The trauma returns compulsively, defeating any attempt to affirm a new time, a new beginning. Melancholia, though, is not the same as trauma, even though it can, as some of your colleagues here have argued, take traumatic form. For the melancholic, the past never took place, and this refusal disturbs the present manifesting in complaint and mania or in the oscillation between the two. With complaint, an authority is faulted or the world is faulted. Something is emphatically wrong in the world and it is indicted again and again. The location, the, the guilty uh, party uh, is named this way and then that way, but no name succeeds in naming the loss itself. With mania, however, there's a way of breaking free of the demand to mourn, insisting on a new future, moving forward with excited declarations and great speed. Unfortunately, mania is manic denial. 
and so a continuation of melancholia, one of its forms. For instance, even though thousands still die every week from COVID-19, we're told by politicians that <gasps> the pandemic is over. This excited declaration is supposed to let us know that the markets are open, we can consume and travel, tear off our masks, breathe freely. But what if that declaration coincides with the sense of ambient death, the abiding sense that there are those who are Im immunocompromised, who cannot possibly enjoy public space without great fear, those for whom long COVID would imply the loss of employment and their social worlds, whose deaths are, ask, are we asked not to acknowledge? The declaration that the pandemic is over is arguably a manic one, since yes, the pandemic is nowhere near as severe as it once was, and public and market spaces are now open to the maskless many. But that is only because we turn away from those who have to remain sequestered or whose risk is not ameliorated by vaccines. In other words, we know that there are those at risk of dying, but from them we look away so that the declaration that the pandemic is over secures our freedom. We would rather have our freedom and look away. Those lives are now dispensable, a small price we have agreed to pay so the rest of us can more easily congregate, move, and breathe. COVID-19 has been a disease of the interconnected world. It has passed between humans and humans, from animals to humans, and it shows us quite clearly that we share the air, that the air binds us to one another. We require it to live, and it also carries threats to our health. We breathe in the air of the other, and they breathe our breathing, which means that we are potentially imperiled both by airborne diseases and environmental toxins. We also want the breath of the other to give us that sense of being alive, singing together, dancing, intimate relations. If we cannot commonly trust the air that we breathe, we cannot breathe easily, and we cannot breathe together. We cannot trust in the basic elements that keep us alive, water, soil, and air, for when they are toxified, so are we. When they vanish um, or lose their regenerative capacities, so do we. We are not just confronting a loss. This loss is in and of us, and we are in and of the loss that is beyond us. On the one hand, there is sensuous interdependency of living creatures that has been exposed by both COVID-19 and climate destruction. Both have illuminated not just our dependency on each other, but on the earth and the earth's dependency on us to restrain our production and to understand ourselves as decentered within a web of life that we ourselves have imperiled. We will not lose the living earth all at once. We know it by the loss of species and glaciers. So bit by bit, the verdict of loss is being delivered and will be delivered again. But it is escal escalating, even as denial, denialism, always working in tandem with market forces. And we are prob prob probably right to say that denialism in various forms is having a season of exhilarated mania. But how do we re rewrite the scene of loss, the loss of what is living, for the present when fresh loss constantly overwhelms the scene of mourning, where the time of grieving coincides with the time of losing? Do we need a different account of denial or melancholia that corresponds to this new temporality of climate destruction in which we are all living now? Of course, many people now refer to climate grief or climate sorrow, and it is taking place often through forms of art, taking shape, taking form through works of art. With climate change, we do not stop to grieve in the aftermath of loss, for this loss suffuses the present and the future. Loss has happened, is happening still, and we anticipate an even more catastrophic loss of life forms if the world continues to produce and permit carbon emissions at its present rate, if fossil fuels are presupposed as essential to our way of life. And yet people have ways to refuse this loss, ways of warding off knowledge of this loss to come, 
For, as I have suggested, there are those who accept that market demands, industrial pollution, extractivism, and the current rate and mode of production are inevitable or considered as a problem for future generations to contend with. That form of manic denial not only refuses the loss, but produces more loss, ushering in enormously destructive consequences. They live for the present or for profits, letting the market structure their experience of time, even their fantasy of a future that includes a good life, that is, a prosperous life for them. But in these days, the temporal dreams that belong to capitalism have become the instruments of a death drive, as has the invocation of personal liberty that insists on capital accumulation as a fundamental right. I found that under the pandemic, I missed going to museums, I confess. I missed going terribly. I hadn't realized that going to museums was so important to me. It was kind of embarrassing. What was this loss, and how am I to understand myself as someone who's actually not very well unless I'm engaging with art in some way? I'm not known for that. I've never been an art critic, and my metier has always been philosophy, literature, etc. Okay, I've written on some films, Diane Arbus's photographs, Kafka's drawings, paintings of Bracha Ettinger. But my relation to the visual arts, at least, is fairly undocumented, if not fully private. During the pandemic, I found that I needed to enter into another space and be enclosed there with objects, if only for a time. And in a Winnicottian sense, I needed to be held by the walls, the structure of the place itself. The psychoanalytic terms holding and containing originated in the works of Winnicott and Bion in the 1960s. Holding is explained in reference to a maternal embrace that facilitates the development of the infant. But in psychoanalytic practice, it describes more generally the potential of analytic space to provide out reliable and responsive therapist, a specific time, a stable room, um, where intolerable passions and anxieties can be articulated and contained, where what is felt to be unbearable can be born. Although the two concepts, containment and holding, are ultimately distinct, they build upon one another and have become almost interchangeable in contemporary usage. What interests me about a Winnicottian account of museum spaces during the pandemic is not just that. When they were provisionally open, one was given a space that was not a domestic space and in many ways could not possibly be analogized with it. The self who enters that space comes to realize that it's not entirely separate from objects, but finds itself decentered and articulated within the field of objects. Object relations theory has offered a comprehensive account of the self-object relation, using the term object to refer to all kinds of people in whom, by whom, and with whom the self emerges and comes to understand itself. The self comes to understand its own separate contours, as it were, only in relation to these objects, but the contour, the surface of the body, is not really thinkable outside of its relation to objects. Referenced here is not only a primary dependency on those who provide basic care, very often for Winnicott, the mother, but sometimes, to his credit, a maternal field where various caring functions can be distributed the therapist can and should be taken up as one of its elements. The therapist's task is to receive the intolerable passions that the client brings into the space and directs towards the therapist. And as the therapist demonstrates that they can withstand and survive the destructive passions of the client, um, the client is given the chance to consider its own destructiveness, to overcome, as it were, the fear of their own unmanageable passions, whether hatred or love, resentment or sexuality, without fear that the passion will destroy the object on whom or on which one depends for sustenance, care, and the conditions of ongoing life. Christopher Bolas, the psychoanalyst, said that a good therapist had to be willing to be mutilated by uh, the patient 
which means you survive that mutilation in some sense. It's important to understand that the object is acting in the scene. It's not a mere surface available for projection, at least in psychoanalytic space and time. The therapist becomes an object who talks and gives back, holding, in some sense, taking the intolerable passions on, including unmanageable sorts of dependencies. The psychoanalytic space is also acting in the scene, and whatever happens in that holding environment does so by virtue of the agency of objects, the space in which it occurs, and the appointed time of the encounter, space and time, are both part of the action. When Winnicott insists that the self is relational, even that the self is not a substance, but a relation, defined as a relation, not one, but a set, he's insisting that it does not exist without the relations that support and engage that life. So at the end of a session, or indeed an analysis, one is not exactly returned to the self that one is, one finds oneself in the vector of relations, and one comes to terms with the relations by which one is defined. In this sense, we might say the self is worlded. Whatever the self is, it's not fully separate from all those elements because the object takes up or takes on the psychic material, holds it for a time, is also part of the restructuring, refashioning, and reanimating of the self from its outside, unoutside, an object field, it cannot live without. For no self can come into being without a holding environment. And in the end, it's not fully separable from that environment. Winnicott remarks that if the therapist object survives the passions brought into the scene, the ones that one fears will destroy any object in its path, or perhaps only the one one needs most, then the client not only comes to fear one's own passions less, but also finds that the object, alas, has a reality of its own. It's over there, not just a figment of my mind. Projection is given up in the affirmation of relationality. Winnicott writes, in this way a shared reality is created, which the subject can use and which can feed back this other-than-me substance, into the subject, an other-than-me substance. In other words, the reality of an external person of a time-space that does not belong only to me, and here again we can think about the air and the soil, becomes part of the reality of the subject itself. This is not an act of incorporation, he says, but rather a way of living in a shared reality Something of the ego is given up, both at the level of theory and of life. What? This world is there for you as well? It's as if there's an awakening from a debilitating narcissism. What? We are in an exchange that establishes relationality as the very condition and substance of who I am? That was not the original deal under liberalism. I am... As it were, over there, in fact, I, I find that I am, as it were, over there, outside myself, in you or in other so-called objects, but this comportment outside myself is not projection or hallucination, it's rather the very possibility of life, and I will add, of love. Whereas an ego psychologist will probably emphasize the process of individuation and hope for a full and complete accomplishment, Winnicott takes another path. Getting well, getting better, demands an understanding of the shared world as in me, of me, what I am, and the substance in which I dwell, which is of necessity beyond me. And this brings me back to museum spaces. When I entered the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art for the first time during the pandemic, there were very few exhibitions. But there was one exhibition of photographs that artists in the region had taken of trees. They had clearly taken these photographs on their walks where safe distances could be secured. In a way, the exhibition was featuring the redwoods and madrone trees where we live, but was also providing a scene of contemplation that relayed in some ways the scenes of contemplation that many people had every day as they walked through neighborhoods or wooded areas. 
Those trees made me recognize something of the quotidian character of aesthetic experience and what one might call its saving power, by which I mean that they were, for a time, held by objects in a Winnicottian sense. For it was never just the humans who were missed during those lockdowns, of course they were, but the larger object world as well, whose ways of holding involved a way of receiving and giving back a fundamental rhythm, a life-sustaining exchange. It was later, though, that I started to have the sense in museums that I was giving my psychic life over to objects to carry me for a while. Whatever seemed intolerable at the moment was provisionally taken over by the objects, and perhaps the object field, as if those objects were kindly taking my head away for a while. It was a generous and knowing offer that these objects made to me. They worked my mind over. They did what they wanted as they, their structure became the structure of my own perception. And eventually, they gave my mind back to me in some kind of renewed state. That did not mean that the objects transformed all my suffering into joy. No, the transformation was not exactly redemptive in that sense. It was rather that the objects actively transformed the intolerable condition of the mind into something tolerable, a transformation that was, for me, a renewal of the world, or perhaps the sense of an abiding and life-sustaining world, because I had been brought into a, a relation to an object that contained or held some thinking of its own, even as it contained and temporarily restructured my thought processes. In giving my mind over to the object to be worked over in whatever way was necessary, I also entered into a kind of exchange or relation that proved to be, that proved, mm, uh, to be a different sense of who I am. Without objects, I cannot be. Only in relation to objects does that sense of living in a shared reality prove to be tolerable. And given that, given that COVID-19 is a disease of the interconnected world, it seemed for a long time that that interconnection was toxic, potentially or actually fatal. It was not possible to get close to anyone without fear. It was not possible to get close without fearing that one might inadvertently jeopardize the life of the other. And yet, we never needed each other more. But here is my question. What was the sense of interconnection um, made possible um, that sustains life in the midst of what is intolerable? Um, in other words, what, what was it? What was it about interconnection or what kind of interconnection was it that was able to sustain life in the midst of what surely seemed intolerable? Objects, spaces, discrete temporal durations yielded a sense of shared world for surviving, harrowing, sometimes relentless, and devastating losses. The museum, of course, is not a therapist. But the object did, did take my passions and take me over. And when I say that, it's not a figure of speech or facile personification. During the pandemic, a, a phrase captured some of the multi-directional agency involved in walking and seeing. It was the trees to which I was given over. An anthropocentric account would say that I gave myself over to the trees, and hey, only figuratively, keeping the sense that only humans have agency and any other attribution is a category mistake. An object-oriented ontology might say that the objects acted first and only after did I find myself caught up in the trajectory of their action. I saw my mind become an object for a while, or rather understood that my mind was outside myself and in the object being worked on, worked over, roughed up, and reshaped, only to come back to me as not precisely my own, but as a thing acted upon and acting in the midst of interconnected relations. Those pictures of trees became oddly, the condition or the scene of staying human in the midst of affliction, of becoming a self-object whose humanness could never exist if objects cease to act upon it and to enter into its very substance. In this sense, objects became the life force of the human, even as they displace human perception from its most treasured anthropocentric conceits. 
And the substance of the human turns out to be a relation of interconnectedness that brings both pleasure and danger as it bears directly on the questions of climate grief and the demand for new forms of imagining. As you know, in the last year, this year, iconic works of art have been attacked by climate activists demanding action that would stop and reverse climate destruction. The incidents include a German environmental group throwing mashed potatoes at a Claude Monet painting in a Potsdam museum. I mean, it is funny. <laughs> Activists from Just Stop Oil throwing tomato soup over Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. A group splashing pea soup on a van Gogh masterpiece in Rome. Extinction Rebellion campaigners glued their hands to a Picasso painting in Melbourne, and yet other activists stuck themselves onto artworks by Botticelli. I mean, I sort of understood it, All right, Because I was already in and of the object, but I was having a slightly different experience than they were. A few months ago, two protesters from the Stop Fossil Fuel Subsidies campaign marked up Andy Warhol's Campbell's soup cans with blue markings, okay, at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. According to The Guardian, one of the members of the Just Stop Oil group made the following pronouncement. What is worth more, art or life? And one of the activists, Phoebe Plummer, 21 at the time, from London, um, she's the one who said that. She was accompanied by 20-year-old Anna Holland from Newcastle, Quote, is it worth more than food, art, more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? End quote. Okay. Maybe she's talking to my paper. Let's find out. Perhaps not everyone involved with these actions shared the same <clears throat> rationale. But this one stood out because of the opposition it posited between art and life drawing perhaps from situationist strategies that seek to produce a spectacle large enough to jolt the wider public into a potentially revolutionary understanding of the damages done by cap capitalism. Um, these uh, activists did have their own art practice, even as they uh, targeted works of art. The situationists in the 60s, 1960s, and early 70s sought to expose and oppose the way that social relations became increasingly mediated by commodities, and so included as a, a central um, goal the disambiguation of human relations from object relations under capitalism. The high publicity was central to their deliberate actions, but many questions were left more or less unanswered. Is the enemy the commodity form or the object worlds? The problem <laughs> that commodification has taken over the object field, or is it the case that humans should be thought of separately from the object field? Central to some Marxist critiques, especially those derived from the early Marx, who, as we know, is at his most anthropocentric, is the idea that humans are falsely objectified and that retrieving the human from the object world is necessary for any possible rehumanizing process. Is there any part of the object that itself resists commodification, though, or does all resistance emerge from an exclusively human sphere? In asking whether art is more important than life, the climate activists cited here assume that art is not life, or that art does not pursue the very question, what is the relation between art and life? The forms of activism that target works of art and the museums in their, well, conser conserving function, assume that the work of art is valuable because of its market value. Which museum holds an iconic picture surely does depend, in part, on who can afford to purchase or hold that work. Those who have attacked the work say that the work is protected, that there's film or another sort of encasement that protects the work against actual damage, so what they're doing is producing a display in which it appears that a group is attacking a work of art in order to jolt people, especially uh, complacent consumers, into a realization that climate disaster is real. 
the action works only on the condition that the museum has done a good job in protecting the work of art. So the action depends, in fact, on the museum's effective functioning, right? We know those museums are good. We can do this. If the action claims to be against museums as such, joining with the contemporary critique of museum culture as elite, governed by market values, or indeed as implicated in the history of colonialism, I understand you've got some stolen objects here in Copenhagen as well. Let's hope for repatriation. Let's struggle for repatriation. I'm all for it. Um, then the action depends on the conservation function of the museum in order not to actually damage the work. And yet protective coverings are fallible and people do slash works of art and steal them even when under the surveillance of guards. So mm, we, can't, we could say that these... Uh, neo-situationist um, actions uh, sought only to bring about a display of damage without damaging, although they did, in fact, take the risk of actually damaging in order to make the point that people feel horror and fear about the prospect of damaged iconic paintings, but feel next to nothing about the destruction of the earth itself. In response to those who've been horrified by such a strategy, some activists point out that these are bourgeois sentiments par excellence, and that the wider public needs a jolt to wake up to the true damage of climate destruction. Now, I think there are several rejoinders to these arguments and tactics, uh, but before I offer some, I want to say that I actually agree with the activist claim that we must be jolted into a recognition of climate destruction and that far too many governments, corporations, businesses, and publics remain in a perilous denial about the destruction of life processes and irreversible climate catastrophe. In my view, it is better to be critical of climate activists who focus on staging the destruction of iconic art than to ignore them because they have something to say. They are trying to deliver that jolt, the one that interrupts our denial, and makes us confront the ongoing loss that we are bringing about all the time. But still, a question lingers for me. What world do we create when we threaten works of art? And what world can art help us to create in order to counter the enormous forces of destruction and denial? I think that the solution to this problem is to rally the arts, both in and out of museums, in person and online, to challenge pervasive forms of denial and to start imagining ways to save the planet. I agree with the philosopher Ana Longo, who recently wrote, and I quote, in times like those mm, that we are currently living through, I guess I would have said these, art seems not only impossible, but also frivolous, powerless. Therefore, it is in these moments when one has the greatest need for art, or rather to become artists, not the creators of new masks for the values in the name of which the masses are going to be persuaded to desire their servitude, but as living agents capable of affirming life against that which mutilates under the pretext of preserving life. Okay, here then are a few points. The first is simply that the quasi-situationist spectacle of damaging art only works if the activists rely on museums to protect the art. Okay, I've said that now three times. In that sense, the activists presume and endorse the museum as a site where art is preserved. The action may be anti-market, but is it at least implicitly uh, um, uh, pro-museum? Um, and it constitutes an aesthetic practice, even if an outdated one. Secondly, there are plenty of reasons to criticize museums as elite spaces, and the more the museum becomes a part of public space, affordable for everyone, the better it is. Indeed, making museums free to the public, bringing dance and film and improvisation into museum spaces, including its unused thresholds, its basements and roofs, is all good in my view. The museum once truly open, can extend the public sphere and even prevent the full collapse of the public sphere into its digital version. Third, it's surely right to claim that the marketplace of art distorts, distorts the value of art and that it's nearly impossible to encounter a work of art outside of the framework of the market. 
commodification affects the ways we see and even keeps us from seeing or censoring or encountering works of art, including performances of all kinds. But what remains unanswered is whether the market value of an object fully exhausts its value. For it is one thing to say that market value cannot exhaust all sense of value, and quite another to conclude that the value of life is greater than the value of art. If we too quickly accept that last conclusion, we're assuming that the value of art has nothing to do with the value of life, um, and yet the work of art can be profoundly connected to the value of life, and art of various kinds, including documentary and digital experimentation, may well lead the way in helping us to imagine and think about a climate disaster that we either fully deny or find too unbearable to think about. If art is one way that the unbearable and the unthinkable become thinkable, then the art object, like the object in Winnicott's sense, proves to be both the occasion for such a contemplation, the realization that the object world is interconnected with our organic living as it is with the living processes of the interdependent biospheres that constitute the Earth. Winnicott claimed that the space, the time, the reliable and responsive object or, or other all make it possible to endure and reflect upon passions, conditions that otherwise seem intolerable. Most of his examples begin with the desire to destroy, a desire that proves to be intolerable in part because when directed against a primary caregiver, the child risks destroying the other who secures the condition of that child's own life. The child has to learn, in other words, that um, uh, its desire to destroy does not have the power actually to destroy. And in losing that conviction of omnipotence, the child comes to recognize the durability and survivability of the other, but also comes to accept a certain kind of dependency, and then hopefully later in life, interdependency. Of course, groups of people, especially large ones, are not the same as infants, and yet none of us overcome uh, our dependency on others and our denial about just how deep that dependency goes. If the object lets humans feel that they can afford um, uh, to bear intolerable uh, passions and feelings, including murderous hatred and irreparable grief, it's because the object is the place where psychic material is reorganized. And in the case of psychoanalysis, the therapeutic object, maybe the therapist themselves, agrees to be gut-punched or mutilated by the client, to use Christopher Bolas's terms. The agreement to become the object of rage and grief, and even to become provisionally mutilated by the client, is part of the psychotherapeutic contract for the client or patient, the feelings can be born without the fear that the feeling is itself an action, and that to feel anger or hatred is not the same as committing a murder, or that feeling grief dissolves one to such a degree that one becomes as lost as the one who is grieved. Once the object lets such a distinction emerge, the thought of destruction, desire, grief, or envy becomes tolerable. If enacted in a certain way, that can be seen and reflected upon, everyone survives its expression, and ideally everyone begins the process of working through the unbearable. Climate disaster constitutes a new version of the unbearable, and for this we need art more than, more than ever. Stephanie Le Manager, a professor of both literature and environmental studies, writes about anticipatory grief in the petroleum culture that has come to define our modernity, the anxious anticipation of the loss of the world we know, a world that conducts the death of its own futurity. The world that we have known is bound to disappear in one way or another due to climate uh, change, in her language, and we grieve its loss because it is also the loss of our embodied memories of, in some ways, our entire lives. I'm quoting still, to the extent that the oil industry and its fossil fuels has become coextensive with the sense of the world, it is also the source of its destruction. And living within that world, benefiting from that world, is the destruction we can neither see nor forfeit without a form of grieving 
that most feel is impossible precisely because our lives have become unthinkable without oil. For Le Manager, as well as for Catriona Sandalan, um, uh, Sandalan SX, uh, and I quote, the experience of environmental melancholia is one mechanism for the negotiation of environmental loss and environmental responsibility, end quote. The loss of the world we know, the destruction of the earth, is one we can only anticipate but cannot yet openly mourn. As she puts it, and I quote, the object of loss is ungrievable. I think she's quoting me. Sorry, that was narcissistic. <laughs> the object of loss is ungrievable within the confines of a society that cannot acknowledge non-human beings, natural environments, and ecological processes as appropriate objects for genuine grief. So there you have the idea that grief changes depending on what the object is that is being grieved, and she is now enumerating uh, how grief needs to be rethought in relationship to non-human beings, natural environments, and ecological processes. So we're not just anticipating a grief that we will feel in the future if we live to experience the final destruction of climate and earth. Well, none of us will experience that. We will probably not be around on that day. So we live, rather, with the prospect of that day or set of days, that final and irreversible turn. The greater problem is that we're losing the earth all the time as long as we refuse to grieve the loss of our commitment to oil. We are losing all the time since the process of climate destruction is happening now. And now we have to rethink what it means to mourn when the loss is not complete. And by definition, there will be no one left standing to witness that completion. Right. So, mourning will never be complete. The art that can deliver the jolt is the one that demonstrates and documents the normalization of destruction without normalizing it further. That normalization of oil production and consumption should be exposed for the destructive process that it is. For that, we need forms of art that stand for life in the midst of its destruction, but also expose the ruse by which ruination masks itself as progress, or worse, normal life. That is what environmental theorist Heather Davis brilliantly calls, and I quote, a performative archive of now, end quote. An act of witnessing, she writes, that records not the state of things lost, but anticipatory grief and the uncanny feeling of a world already gone, end quote. And I would add a vanishing of the world that is happening at the very same time that we seek a way to grieve as we lose and to resist that loss in the midst of grief. I began this lecture considering the various meanings of um, uh, what place art could have under conditions in which uh, we are not fully distinct from the ways, which art is not fully distinct from the ways that legal regulations regarding property and commodities govern the ways we see. I, I waver about art and museums, and I waver still between a more materialist understanding that would show how, how our ways of seeing and encountering are framed by state and market relations, and a recalcitrant idealism that insists upon artworks that expose their very powers. Although I lie with those who would, in relation to climate catastrophe, jolt us from our fatal slumber, show how the world we have come to desire is the one that will, unchecked, destroy every condition of life itself. I'm not sure that acts of destruction, even allegorical acts that run the risk of actual destruction, can lead us away from a destructive world toward an affirmation of interconnected life. Winnicott shows us how objects can bring us back into a shared reality, interrupting destructive passions so that we can endure the thought of them and struggle against their actualization. He also shows us how anthropocentrism and its narcissistic affects can be displaced in favor of a notion of relationality. So for me, the question is not whether art is more important than life, but whether we can live, that is, affirm life, in the midst of its precarity and accelerating dissolution in the shadow of impending destruction. 
If objects let us live, they also put us into relations that minimize the human-centered world. And from that place of militant humility, some kinds of civil disobedience are surely necessary. But they will have to be those that do not only negate contemporary reality, but struggle to enact the very principles we want to see embodied in a world to come. We will have to be somewhat crazy idealists to survive, but luckily we have the object world to hold that crazy for a while. The singular experience of the work of art cannot be the model for thinking about the state of art, for the state of art involves the production of the space of appearance, and that space where people come together, where the public can freely gather, is crucial not only for the experience of art, but for the future of democracy and its public goods. When museums, for instance, become the site of public lectures and discussions over matters of public concern, then they enter into the democratic life of the place where they are situated. When museums house dance and performance art and open their spaces to live art and to forms of public gathering that people expect from other sites, including parks and streets, then the space of appearance emerges. And that space emerges wherever, according to Hannah Arendt, that space of appearance emerges wherever people come together to consider what is most important to them. And though the museum will never be the agora or the public space, it can offer that space for thoughtful and creative forms of gathering. It may seem odd to, to end my talk with some reference to Hannah Arendt, after all, seems pretty anthropocentric, but I'm going to try it. Um, in the human condition, Hannah Arendt defined action as a form of deliberate and effective speaking, offering a political theory of the speech act avant la lettre. She imagined in the human condition an orator with the power to legislate, to propose a set of laws that would express the freedom of the people rather than their repression. And in her work on revolution, she remarked, and I quote, that freedom coincides with the experience of a new beginning. This experience of foundation coincides with the sense that a new story is about to be told, end quote. And in her short essay on freedom, she argues that for freedom to truly be freedom, there must be a common public sphere or space. No freedom without space, she puts it. This is not to say that all forms of common space are free, or even that they all condition freedom, but that they can. In other words, wherever freedom exists, it exists in such a space. There can be no freedom without a public space, so if art spaces are to provide the site for gatherings that further democratic ideals of freedom, they have to be accessible. They have to be free. Privatization can never be the condition of freedom of the kind that Hannah Arendt was speaking about. Indeed, in her essay on freedom, she seeks recourse to the ideals of the performing arts to understand freedom. But it emerges again later when she thinks about political judgment as a form of aesthetic judgment. She insists that free action manifests freedom in the act. It does not follow the rules that dictate what freedom shall be. That would undercut its own claim to be free. She writes instead that the inspiring principle becomes fully manifest only in the performing act itself. In other words, we cannot discover the principle of freedom in advance of its enactment. I take this actually to be an anarchist impulse within Hannah Arendt's work. In other words, we cannot discover the principle of freedom in advance of its enactment. Its enactment is the site, the occasion, in which we come to know what it is. Further, freedom is not simply enacted at a discrete moment in time, only then to be relinquished. In her view, freedom is inexhaustible, open to an infinite iteration. It becomes manifest and known through action and only through action. And she's clear, and she writes, the appearance of freedom, like the manifestation of principles, coincides with the performing act. Although the example she gives is of an individual performer, she wants the argument to work for the people, the plurality that the people are. When people gather to declare themselves free, when they endeavor to overthrow a tyrant or collectively decide to establish a polity whose laws embody their freedom, they are manifesting in their very action the principle of freedom itself. Freedom doesn't pre-exist the act. 
It gathers itself and makes itself known as the gathering. Adriana Cavarero, Italy's leading Arentian feminist philosopher, has coined the term surging democracy to name a kind of public happiness. And this form of happiness is perhaps the corollary of the sense of regeneration I felt being worked over by the objects in the museum. She rightly contrasts this public happiness to forms of creative violence, her, her view, that seek liberation from oppressive conditions without considering freedom as an enactment of human relationality. This same phrase, relationality, appeared in Winnicott as he recounted the difficulties of emerging in the context of a dyadic relationship. In Cavarero, relationality is found in public gatherings and concerted actions, and I quote, public happiness is discovered and rediscovered by political actors whenever or wherever they perform for the sake of the freedom to be free, thus tasting the constitutive birthing quality of action, end quote. For Cavarero, this principle of natality, of bringing something living into being, is there in the midst of political congregations. I like to think of it as a regenerative action. It comes closer to a form of poesis than to praxis or phronesis. It describes the making of something unprecedented, the bringing about of a new reality, one that expresses freedom rather than its degeneration. And the happiness in freedom is also an expression of this human interdependency, my term, she calls it plurality. For I, for I am only free with others since what I am is this set of relations, this plural interdependency. And what is enacted in the experience of concerted action, shared freedom, and the bringing about of something new. To act politically, Cavarero tells us, produces a kind of happiness different and higher than any private activity. Its meaning is executed in the act, end quote. An aesthetic principle is at work in Arendt, in Cavarero, makes it explicit. Later, Arendt will say that, the ju that judgments have to be made about genocide, for instance, that can rely on no existing law. Where crimes are unprecedented, moral and legal judgment can rely on no prior conventions. The judgment must be formed in relation to the crime, and that means that a serious form of improvisation and spontaneity informs that judgment. In other words, the freedom crafted in making new judgments about unprecedented situations is crucial if we are to come to understand and act in relation to historical and ecological circumstances that are unprecedented and largely unforeseen. We are in that situation now as climate catastrophe becomes the name for an ongoing form of destruction, unprecedented at every step. We cannot oppose that destruction with destructive acts of our own if we are to make the world less violent. The mode and method by which we oppose this destruction must contain within itself the very <clears throat> interrelationality and, and dependency um, on the earth, our, our living in and, and of the earth that we seek to preserve. The actions that oppose uh, destruction cannot be forms of creative violence without degenerating democracy in Cavarero's terms. We are, as it were, living together as we act together, and our action exemplifies the kind of freedom and relationality that we want to see enacted with happiness across the world. We have to know and acknowledge what we are losing in order to stop that accelerated sense of loss which means that our mourning must be coupled with collective action, the kind that renews democracy as it acts, that renews freedom, understood as share, shared and plural, and that is dedicated to the regeneration of the earth and all its life forms. The regeneration of the earth and the regeneration of democracy, even the regeneration of my miserable mind under COVID lockdown, depend upon actions that exemplify the life-giving character of human collective action. We act with others, but we're also acted upon in ways that can regenerate us by both people and objects and by the earth itself. There is no human life without the life of the earth. To bring a living object into the world to make art is to make something that acts upon us, and when it is shared, a space emerges, or rather, a living space is brought into the world. Let us then 
link the living spaces of art with the insurgent space of appearance that belongs to democratic freedom, without which our lives cannot be regenerated. The only way through a loss that seems never to end is to gather in mourning and let the gathering create something new. It's only where people can gather that public happiness can be regenerated, and it is the conditions of regeneration that have to overpower the forces of destruction now. For that, we need to make space for what cannot be anticipated, for only those forms of unexpected art making can both document our loss and exemplify the regenerative power we all very desperately require, not just as a human power, but as a regenerative power we share with living, with living uh, creatures everywhere. There used to be a political slogan, <clears throat> don't grieve, act. Uh, but femicide, Black Lives Matter, climate catastrophe, war and colonial violence, all teach us that in gathering to grieve and mourn, we also produce community. And when the streets are filled with mourners who seek to mark a death, the death of those considered ungrievable by those who destroy them, we assert the value of that life, the living, as an interdependent life. The lives of the living maintain solidarity with the dead, and this solidarity goes beyond the humanisms we have known. It goes beyond it to affirm the conditions of life, the living, and the livable. For it is in that realm, beyond us and of us, that we find this loss, this unbearability, and so it is in that domain that we both grieve and act, where mourning is the mark that lets us gather and produce, I hope, a life-affirming solidarity. Thank you. After the lecture, Butler is joined in conversation by Associate Professor Mikkel Krause-Franzen, and you can listen to that conversation in a separate episode of this podcast. EcoThoughts is produced by the Center for Applied Ecological Thinking at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Thank you very much for listening. And please do share this with others if you liked what you heard. <laughs>